Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This time on Vet Story. I am uh, Montel Williams. I never intended to be in television in my entire life. I started off in the Marine Corps, entered the Naval Academy, transitioned from the Marine Corps over to the Navy. At the time, there were black ops that you had, so I did black ops until I got out of service. And, and forgive me for saying this, stop the BS. And let's start talking about things in real terms. Put the, take the prescription pad away from American doctors. I'm going to continue to fight to make sure that we fund VA hospitals so that we have a center of excellence for our soldiers. Welcome back to Vet Story. I'm Phil Briggs, and this episode was exciting for me because of our guest. I'm not going to lie, I'm a huge fan. He's a veteran who, as a television personality, was a household name through the 90s and the early 2000s. I want to thank you so much for joining us today. You know, one of the hardest things for anybody in this world to deal with in life is a loss. And we've all experienced them in one way or another. Some of us. Since hosting that show, Montel has continued to be an ambassador, author, and entrepreneur, making a difference for a variety of causes. He stands up for veterans' affairs. And he's made a difference for those battling multiple sclerosis, which is a condition he deals with every day. During our conversation, we talked about everything from his service as a naval officer back in the 80s to the current state of the VA, the Choice Program and the problem behind the current opiate addiction crisis in America. He shares his story of his daily fight against MS. He talks about medical cannabis and a winter sport that offers thrills more effective than pills. We began our conversation talking about the era where I first learned to appreciate Montel Williams. The 90s. This is how we do it. I'd like to start by just saying, hey, you're one of the two most important Montels in my life. Through the 90s when I was in the Navy, uh, Montel Williams' show was huge. And uh, the Montel Jordan song, This Is How We Do It. So whenever I see you, I just kind of get that song in my mind. This is how we do it. Yeah, it's really weird. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so weird because I have people walk up to me all the time and go, Hey, Mr. Jordan, how you doing? I, I kind of find it just a little strange because he and I look nothing alike. The only similarity <laughs> we have is a name. You know what I'm saying? And, it's weird, but you know what I mean. I, I, it's it's funny. I, I normally correct people and go, "No, wrong one." You know what I mean? <laughs> and keep going. Through the '90s, you were the most important Montel, in my humble opinion, and uh, I'm just glad to be on the phone with the veteran Montel Williams. Well, thank you very much, sir. Now, let me. We're going to cover a lot real quick, but I want to flash back to the '70s real quick because I always found it interesting that you got involved. You began your military service kind of on the back end of Vietnam, and 1974 was an odd time to me to enlist in the Marine Corps. Tell me about what made you want to leave the great state of Maryland and join the Marine Corps. Uh, 1974. Well, I think you know, like so many other young people at that time, I was very involved in a lot of activities and. Uh, probably should have done a lot more work at prepping to go to college that I didn't do. I had offers for scholarships. I just didn't take advantage of them. And I, 
I literally found myself in, you know, December without a real plan. And, you know, I had some friends that had gone in the service that, you know, they came back home, especially the guys who went in the Marine Corps, they came back home and they looked like they actually had their lives together. So I went in an early enlistment program and then delayed program to go to boot camp, went in uh, to boot camp at the, right before the end of 74. Um, and then, you know, for me, you know, even though it was not a time in America, because if you remember, um, you know, we were protesting Vietnam. Uh, people were going to jail for their activities involved in the Vietnam War. Um, Cali had just gone down. America had a very, very different impression. There was nobody running around the United States of America going, I support the troops. Nobody. As a matter of fact, the majority of the time, you might have to like, spin them around in front of you if you had your uniform on. Mm. So um, it was not time. But you know, I felt at that point, I had only been a president of my class two years in a row. I was involved civically. I felt the responsibility and, and understood that it was a pathway to a lot of things. Without getting into all the details, suffice to say, we could talk for a long time about Montel Williams' military bio. I mean, yeah, but I started off in the Marine Corps. So I was in Paris Island. I was in Paris Island, 29 Palms, 29 Palms. I got selected to go to the Naval Academy Prep School, which was in Newport, Rhode Island. So I was at the Naval Academy Prep School there, entered the Naval Academy, transitioned from the Marine Corps over to the Navy. It was like, Yes, he went from the Marine Corps to the Naval Academy in Annapolis. But what I found most interesting is when he told me about some of the places he was stationed. Um, I think I was stationed on Guam. Went from Guam to the Defense Weapons Institute where I studied Russian. Went there and left there. Stayed for the remainder of my career in the National Security Agency. Or in, at the time, there were black ops that we had. So I did black ops until I got out of service. And you know, along the way, I mean, I'm leaving out a whole bunch of the details. I probably have over 600 days on the water. I've been involved in, I think, uh, during my active duty career, I was involved in, at the time, any one of the hot spots that we had uh, that had broken out. I was on Grenada. I was one of the only naval officers, the people that did that. I was part of the, again, naval security groups. I was doing ops there. I was in the Middle East doing the living shootdown, and it was some of our team members that, were involved in that. Um, I spent time in the Indian Ocean, time in the North Atlantic. Now, the question he gets a lot is, how do you go from the Navy to TV? And the answer isn't so easy. But what I got from him was the story of two events that kind of moved him in that direction. And one of these was while he was at the NSA. I ran an office there that had a very unique group of, of soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines that had a very unique job skill that unfortunately forced them to be deployed for extremely long periods of time. Now, eventually, the families of these service members needed some support. So Montel, using both leadership and his natural ability to speak to people, stepped up and helped. And without even thinking about it as a program, I just started bringing the family members in on the base. I was the unit commander at the time, so I mean, uh, I was the OIC of this particular department. So I had some family members come in, we tried to help hook up some ombudsman services and some things like that. Back in the time when we weren't really thinking about this as a service. And, you know, because of that, uh, a friend of mine who asked me if I'd take some of those skills and speak at a conference. I spoke at a conference in January that was completely unrelated to the military. It was a, a student union conference out in Kansas State University. It was in January of 1988. 
That's one speech garnered about 30, 40 speeches. I started taking lead time and doing those speeches. And before I even realized what I was doing, I started a program. I was talking to kids and people and families about, you know, experiences and how to overcome negative trends. And I woke up one morning and NBC United News called and said they wanted to do a story and wanted to be on Today Show. And that was in May of 1988. I did both of those programs. And when those programs finished, Ronald Reagan was the president of the United States at the time. He literally, Colin Powell's office reached out, flew directly to from New York to D.C., met with them over this program that really was not a program. And But because I had garnered so much media attention nationally, um, I had to literally, it kind of blew my cover in a sense, but I had to kind of I'd make a choice of either participating in things like that or going on my career. So that's when I decided to come up active duty. But then for the next three years, I spoke in over 1,500 high schools across America and about oh, 300 community centers across America. I had sponsors who helped me give out scholarships to kids to go to school and to advance education across the country for a three and a half year period of time. Then I went on television again and a couple of national specials. Some people saw that. I flew out to Hollywood, said, look, I think I have a project here. And without agent or manager, I sold the Montel Williams show in 1991. And then I went, I literally sold it in, in contracted in April, flew an entire staff to LA in May, went, did my first show May 8th, went on air the next Monday and 17 years later, showing up there after I won an Emmy and been nominated for about four. So I, I think, you know, how did it happen again? So that's a question. It happened organically. So from organic roots to eventually reaching millions of Americans every day, the fact that his eventual fame came from doing something any good military leader would do is what makes this so fascinating from a veteran perspective. And hopefully gives us all inspiration that the road we're on may take us to places we never thought of. 500,000 kids have seen me live. Sure. About another 250,000 have seen me in a broadcast or a video broadcast of some sort. And when I went on the air, kids would say to their parents, oh, that's that dude that we have my fault. So in 1991, I had almost immediate recognition among a generation that became my most ardent watchers. And I think history proves that, you know, you're recognized and appreciated uh, in TV history in a way that, you know, Springer and the circus sideshow he ran and uh, Ricky, you know, I don't want to insult anybody's reputations here, but I mean, those shows were really just junk food and they were just a circus act and you actually were cool to watch. So um, I thank you for that. I thank you. Now, let's fast forward because you're still involved in substantive issues. And as a veteran, you're still involved with causes uh, related to that. Uh, you've been outspoken about the VA. You at one point wrote an op-ed that was interesting about, uh, you know, the way you thought the VA should operate. Do you have any suggestions for correcting some of the shortcomings that the VA has experienced? Well, I want to tell you something. Something that's gone untrumpeted, and I didn't use that word that way to use the first you know, a syllable, but you know, President Trump a week ago, <laughs> a week and a half ago, passed an amazing bill to help reorganize and provide services to our veterans. And it's not been getting the press that it really should get because veterans don't know about it. And 
one of the things that they've done, yeah, there's some things that need to be happen to the VA hospital itself still, even though he's made these changes. The first thing he's done is he's basically putting together a program, if I'm reading it correctly, and it's hard to get all the details, but the program is one that would allow a veteran, no matter where they are in the country, to basically have a VA hospital card where every hospital would have to provide services. So no matter where you live, if you're living in the boondocks someplace and you're 300 miles away or 200 miles away from the VA hospital, you can walk right into the local hospital and they are going to have to treat you and treat you, I believe, at the cost and the accessibility that you have gotten at a VA hospital. Now, that right there by itself is going to, I think, revolutionize and is on the road to revolutionizing the way we treat our soldiers, sailors, and the Marine Coast Guard no with respect. Hmm. I mean, this is what we wanted. This is what we called for. However, I don't believe it's enough. I'm going to tell you what I mean by that. Our military members have some unique issues and have some unique circumstances that in some ways some atypical civilian hospitals may not be able to recognize. And I'm not knocking anybody. This is not an aspersion. I'm just saying that what we have to do as we make available a wider swath of hospitals and networks that could treat them, I think we need to make sure that we continue to fund our VA hospitals that we might be able to put a couple of them together. We need to continue to fund them so that they are hospitals and of excellence or specialty hospitals. Just like right now, if you get certain forms of cancer, there are certain places in this country you go because you know that those hospitals specialize in that type of cancer. Well, a veteran should have the confidence that I might go to XYZ hospital in XYZ town and see a doctor because my stump has a tear in it. Okay, well, the doctor might be able to close that stump, but he may not have access to the underlying information that's at that VA hospital where they specialize in stump care. Mm. So I'm going to continue to fight to make sure that we fund VA hospitals so that we have a center of excellence for our soldiers. If we have a center of excellence for, for uh, uh, birth control, or not birth control, but for you know, people who have difficulty, in, you know, there's a lot of couples now, have fertility issues. And so we have hospitals that are specializing in that to help you know, military families have families. And I, I have no problem with that. At the same time we do that, I want to make sure that, that we have a specialty hospital that is the VA. So that, again, I'm 200 miles away from that specialty place. I tore my stuff because I was too busy you know, playing sports this weekend in my wheelchair or, you know, I was out there giving back to the community. I went and got the bleeding to stop, but now I need to get him to that VA hospital and he needs to be confident that they will still fix his problem. You know what I find fascinating about your answer, Montel, is that you've kind of straddled two things that seem diametrically opposed, yet you're in favor of them both. You're in favor of the choice plan, which allows uh, people to get great health care as a veteran at any hospital they want, which speaks to privatization, which is the big fear. 
But at the same time, you've managed to be a proponent of VA funding, saying VA hospitals need to step up and become uniquely specialized so that they can handle, you know, and brilliantly manage the health care for certain conditions around the country, like we see in hospitals like the Mayo Clinics or Johns Hopkins or things of that nature. Very interesting. I've never heard somebody actually be able to articulate why both things are good, choice and funding of the VA. You know, but like I tell you, we have to recognize our veterans have a unique, you know, this is a set of circumstances like no other. Yeah, they may have a, a broken back. And yeah, you fix broken backs at some of the top hospitals in America. But they don't fix broken backs with a guy who got blown in the air or thrown out of a helicopter. And don't tell me that that trauma is the same as being hit in a car. Because it's not. Having the the numerous, the idea that that you know sometimes going through the issue of you blew it for your 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 shipmates and, and all those things that are unique to us, and we have to have a unique place that treats us. At the same time, there's so many things that go wrong with us that go wrong with a lot of people in society. I just want to make sure when that veteran walks in the door. And that morning, if he goes to, I don't know, Southwest General Hospital in whatever Southwest town. Yeah, yeah. But he walks in that door, and that morning he might be having a little bit of a hard day. I want somebody in that room to recognize he's not the whatever you were going to call him when he walked out because he yelled at you. You understood this guy suffers from PTSD. That's Brian. Hey, get Brian over here to, to, to Dr. Montel because, you know, he, 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 don't get mad at the guy. You know what I'm saying? And I just see that they're. There's potential for those kinds of issues, and we need to stay on top of them, get ahead of them, and make sure people recognize them, know that that's going to happen, and, you know, don't be, you know, reactive, let's be preemptive. Well said. Where are you quickly on the use of the opiate medication, which I've talked to a lot of vets, and it would seem as though there's a very slippery slope between managing pain and then this opiate addiction that seems to be really gripping the country right now, but it's affecting vets, I think, almost more than it is any other category. Uh, where are you on that? Do you think the VA's maybe overprescribing opiates, or do we need to change our tact? Well, Colleen, I gotta always, I, I gotta say this. This is something that, you know, I really wish that we as a nation would stop, and forgive me for saying this, stop the BS, and let's start talking about things in real terms, in real language. We sit back right now and go, oh my God, I can't believe we have an opioid problem in America today. Oh no, it's so terrible. We have people like Bingo, oh, we need to close the borders. We need to stop the border. No. And hear me for a second. We have an opioid problem because we have taught a society and a nation. Remember, people don't know this. 82% of all the opioids, 82% plus of the opioids consumed in the world are consumed in the United States. We eat it all. During the last Afghan, during during all the, the warfare and fighting in Afghanistan, what's the one place that nobody bombs? They don't bomb the poppy fields. Why? Poppy fields are making the Taliban money. We don't buy it because if we buy, if we bomb them, Americans are not going to get access to these drugs. Now, let me explain them to you. For the last 50 years of television, we have genetically altered the American society because you cannot turn on your TV 
or listen to the radio at any full two minutes of the day and not come across a commercial that says, if something's wrong, take a pill. You got to hear me on this. Oh, we so true. So true. We trained a society that you cannot exist unless you take a pill. Now, we want a quick fix. We keep making the pill stronger and stronger and stronger. How are you going to tell a country, don't be addicted to opioids when you tell them if you can't go to the bathroom, take this. If you tell them if you can't up in the morning and your, you, your eyes don't blink right, take this. If you, you, you walk around and you got a little this, take this. We tell people to take something all day. Mm. And you now want to try to say, don't take it? America needs to come to a grip. We have an addiction problem because we have basically messaged this addiction problem. Now, are we over-prescribing opioids? No question. You can go to the PDR, something called a physician's, physician's desk reference. Look up any drug that's an opioid, and you'll see that the time and duration of taking that is anywhere from like four to six weeks, not five years. Mm. The PDR is what the doctor is supposed to look at before he writes a prescription. We got an attorney general saying to close the borders. No, put the take the prescription pad away from American doctors. Start putting messages out that you know what? Guess what? Here's something funny. I got a message for you. Why don't we start telling America that the only difference in human beings and other animals on the planet is the fact that we have the ability to pre-think and think about our actions and judge them and make a choice. You know, a lion, you know, sitting in the savannah, he didn't eat yesterday. If a, you walk in front of his butt, he instinctively is going to eat you. Mm. Hopefully he's got a choice. He can't say, I'll wait, I'll get him later. He's eating you. Right, right. Okay? We could say, nah, I'm going to get a little bit more sun, put a little suntan lotion, like that. Okay? We have that choice. We have a choice in the way we deal with pain. We have a choice in the way we deal with medicating ourselves. We have a choice in the way we deal with how we feel. We don't have to have an instantaneous gratification for it. So stop the opioid all you want because another one's coming because this is all we preach. I'm sorry. No, you it's me the wrong question. I'm going <laughs> to give you the right answer. Sorry. No, man, I love it. I love your passion. And, and I knew that you would speak well to this because I've watched kind of what you're doing. And in fact, even just this morning when I was looking through your website, um, speaking to choice, it's interesting that you are actually founding a, or you founded a company and you're providing uh, another choice that right now isn't even being truly accepted by one, the VA and two kind of the older world thinking that exists on Capitol Hill in Congress. And um, forgive me if I say it wrong, but, uh, but, but I won't pronounce the company properly. Uh, Lenative Labs and by the website, I see you're yes. creating cannabis products that are hailed as safe, soothing science. Do you feel was your was your impetus for getting involved with medic, medical cannabis um, born of this frustration with the way America acts with its uh, you know pill popping addiction? No, you got you got to go back. This is really very interesting. I'm very vocal about this, and people need just you can Google. Find out as much information on this too about me. 
I had a a opioid addiction. Not addiction. I just had a problem, a problem, a real serious problem when I was first diagnosed with MS. And part of the reason is my problem is that I not every human being on this planet has the same receptors. I am one of those people like there's probably about another 40% of people out here in society who opioids don't work the same way for. I can take four or five, six things of, some, of, of any one of them, and literally instead of drooling in the corner, I'm looking for another one because they don't really affect what it is I'm trying to affect. Mm. I'm one of those weirdos. And we know this for a fact that there's not a drug that's been made on this planet that doctors or like people who manufacture them believe will work for more than 35, 40% of the population because they don't. That's the reason why we have 300, 100 different types of pain medication, because one that works for one person doesn't work for another. You ask the question, ask yourself, do you take a bumpy fact? You said, no, I can't say that. That hurts my stomach. Well, I take it this. I take it that. We make them because we are tailoring them to people. So, let's slow down for a second. When I very first got diagnosed, and I still have it now, I suffer from neuropathic pain. And it can be extreme. I've been, in, I've been able to mitigate it in the last couple of years through other techniques. But as I brought it down, when it first started, it was so severe that I found myself at some point kind of taking anywhere from eight to ten opioids of some particular type, sometimes mixing them to try to see if I could capture in this pain. Oh, wow. I went to a very smart doctor who told me, I'm done writing you these. You're not getting any more. I'm done. Because if it isn't working, we have to figure something else out. I heard from some people who have a similar type of MS you do, that they say cannabis works. I don't know how it works. You will figure it out, and I will say I recommend it to you. And I took that word. I do what I do, and that is I don't, I don't involve myself in anything without doing research. And you know, I'm, I'm an engineer. I graduated from the academy with an engineering degree. I study. I read. I started studying. I started reading. I realized what cannabis would do for me with my illness. And starting back in 2000 really one and a half, I'm not going a day without titrating myself with some form of cannabinoid. And I, then not only did I do this for myself, but I have worked since 2001 to see if I could change the laws around this country and involve in at least 14 to 15 of the states that have passed medical marijuana laws over the last 17 years. And I will continue to make sure that patients in this country have access to a safe and efficacious medication that can help them relieve their issues as well as any other pharmaceutical. I really believe that. But knowing that, I first initially attempted to see if I could find product in the marketplace that I wanted to actually consume myself and realize that we have some really terrible practices going on and some of which I just, they may not be terrible, but I don't necessarily agree with. So I wanted to find a really good and pure product. I didn't find what I wanted. So I, you know what's that old saying? You can't find what you want, do it yourself. Can't get it done, do it yourself. Mm -hmm. So I'm doing it myself. I created Lenative Labs, and the word Lenative, if you look that word up with an E, was one of the most used words in medicine at the turn of the century in the 1900s. It means assuaging pain, lessening pain, feeling better. It, it, was mm -hmm. a, it was a term used because that's what I think cannabis does. And as I reached out to start this company, I reached out to some people who I wanted to have on my board to make sure that we stay completely on track and produce a product that would be acceptable at any medical level. And that's what I'm out to do. That's the reason why on our board are people like Congressman Billy Tozen, who's a former head of pharma. We have people on our board like Mr. Jim Woolsey, you know, former secretary, but also 
you know, a former head of CIA. We have Admiral Ed Straw, who's a former head of the DLA. I have Lindy Snyder, who is, you know, the uh, president of the Snyder Foundation. I mean, just, we have people on our board who have come to the table who recognize that we are trying our best to medicalize this as best we can without pharmaceuticalizing this. Mm. Interesting distinction there, too. Yeah, that's um, medicalize versus pharmaceuticalize, if we can make some words here. For sure. Very cool. I, I think it means more coming from you, too, if I may. Uh, you know, there are a lot of proponents that uh, stand in front of causes, and, and especially when it comes to Hollywood. You know, we tend to see people that are celebrities often stand up, and they have great reach. But your veteran status, a decorated naval officer, I think that really, I'm hoping that that will persuade people to look into this. And I know that uh, next month, I believe there's another bill out there on Capitol Hill, HR 2020, which is trying to knock it down from schedule one classification, which forbids science from researching with it to like a schedule three classification. And, uh, you know, I'm just hoping maybe he can make another trip back to Washington, DC about the time that's on the Senate floor. And, uh, you know, maybe they'll, uh, I may have to get in here and do a little testimony, which I would really love to try to do. I mean, that's what I've been doing around the nation. I'm going to continue to do. And as we continue to, put this product in the marketplace. Right now, Lenative Labs and our product, which is an oil and a a small drink, um, is available in California. We're getting to expand to multiple states very, very quickly. So um, it's, it's in a, it'll be in a city near you soon. And quickly, what are the, what are the conditions that your products would help treat? Uh, we've mentioned MS. Um, what are the other ones? Well, you know, I, I can't, and, and, and honestly, legally, it, it, it would be like, what are the conditions that vitamin C treats? I can't really say that because it's not. But what we do, we know that endocannabinoids, and this is something anybody can look up themselves, or cannabinoids, human beings have something that's called an endocannabinoid system, which means that we have built into our bodies receptors that were made to actually process cannabis, the active ingredients that's in marijuana, and that's the psychotropic all the way through the several others. What I've done is I think we put together a formulation, and if you read and follow some of the science, cannabinoids, especially something called CBD, ingested at high doses amounts, have been even in the patent owned by the U.S. government states unequivocally that it has no protective antioxidant, and other really registrable um, symptom abatement characteristics. So, that's a lot of mumbo-jumbo to say. And we found that, you know, people who have and have neurological disorders, they can find a calming. Some people, like for myself, I can't speak for others, but for me, I have what's called spasticity, and I have a lot of night tremors. It is almost something that can erase those night tremors completely without me having to take a heavy pharmaceutical. Um, I, and when I say completely, I don't think I, last time I can remember waking up by kicking by my wife or, or waking up because I'm shaking so hard. So that helps me with that. It also helps me to deal with my pain, and it also helps me to deal with you know some of the other... I have some slight neurological glitches that it just helps me deal with better. So I think people who have neurological disorders, other people who feel very strongly about what it does, 
for their digestive tract. There are other people who talk about what it does for, you know, um, inflammation. So I think if you, we presented a product, what I try to do is promote a product that's extremely pure. And what we've done is combine ratios of a couple of the cannabinoids to make it easier for a person to titrate themselves or to get themselves up to a level that they can elicit the response that they want. Outstanding. Again, Lenative Labs. You can Google that and find it online. Uh, I found it fascinating, and I thank you not only for your work with respect to the medical cannabis, but uh, being a spokesperson for MS, I know you've been inspiring You've been inspiring to people all over the world, and um, I've just always enjoyed watching where you came from as my favorite TV talk host during the day to this, and then when I found out later in life that we shared the Navy in common, uh, you know, tip of the cap to you. I want to wrap up with one other thing I think we share in common, and uh, I used to work radio in Salt Lake City, Utah, of all places, and I had a fun, I had a really fun hobby uh, that I enjoyed all winter long, and it turns out you enjoy that hobby, and it in fact is medically therapeutic to help your MS. Talk to me about your favorite winter sport. I'm, I am a, the thing I've talked to people about this is crazy. I'm, a, I'm an avid snowboarder and snowboarder because for me, and it heats my nemesis. And so, and in recent years, I've been able to actually do some therapy to actually help abate some of that, but heat has always been my, my nemesis. I feel much better in the dead of winter, in the cold, than I do in the heat. And so, if you're hanging out in the cold, you got to figure out and do something. And because of the way the pain in my feet is, it's really weird. Snowboard, you know, snowboard boots and snowboard bindings are, are kind of, if, I guess if you didn't have foot pain, they wouldn't be annoying. But for me, it kind of, it it's not that they're annoying, it kind of locks my feet into a position where I know where they are. It's hard for people to just understand that, but I'm locked in and I finally have contact with the bottom of my feet. And that makes me feel really good. And it's, it's almost like for a person who gets a runner's high, I get a high out of being able to stop my feet against that board using my ankles to go down a mountain. And it's such a, a freeing, liberating. It's one of those things that also I go on not to because even through my illness, as it progressed and as I've been able to battle back, it's something that always just lets me think for a little while that I'm not sick. Mm. It's cathartic for so many of us. And I remember when I first discovered the joy of skiing and boarding and uh, that never-ending white wave that gets under your feet. And, uh, yeah, you said it all. You're just out there looking at the scenery, a great day in nature. Now that I'm a parent, you know, I'm wanting, I'm excited to share it with my kids. Uh, Yeah. It's just really awesome. You can go out there and you don't don't think about anything other than, you know, I I, kind of, I ride really fast. I think you and, and lots of my friends and even my wife has been like, you know, do you need to slow down? Because I, I probably average in the mid 40s to 50 miles an hour. I, mean, I, ride, I ride with a group of guys who are way younger than me, and we, we really you don't paralyze anything, but we, we're fast. And um, just that idea of running that mountain with only a little piece of plastic under your feet, and you got to move by trees and things. You know, there's nothing else you get to think about but snowboarding. So it's like the most liberal. You don't have to think about any care in the world but just magic carpeting down a mountain and not hitting a tree. (laughs) (laughs) Grip it and rip it. And I tell you what I want to do since I finally got you on the phone here. I was wondering if, if at a future date sometime, if I could get some vets together with me, could we go snowboarding with you? Done. 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 (laughs) Done. Done. 
I love it, man. I will reach out to you and uh, the folks in your organization and uh, follow up with you at some time in the future. Also, as uh, we see movement on Capitol Hill, I'm also going to reach out to you and see if we can maybe get together in Washington, D.C. at another time. But uh, first and foremost, veteran TV personality and uh, just inspiring in a lot of different ways. Mr. Montel Williams, it's been an absolute pleasure getting to know you on the phone this last hour. Thanks so much for having me. So I definitely will check in with you when I'm back in there. Be well. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only twenty-five dollars a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile, get four iPhone 15s on us, and four lines for twenty-five bucks per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com.